Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we sit in silence and stillness now, perhaps the most still and silent we've been all week, still our minds race, our hearts beat quickly, because life is fast-paced, and we can move so quickly, we lose our bearing, we lose our direction. We attach ourselves to so many affections and directions that we actually wander and get lost. So we pray now that you would tune our ears to hear your voice, a voice that leads to truth and righteousness, to a deeper life itself. Help us to see however we find ourselves this morning, believing or unbelieving or somewhere in between. Maybe a friend brought us to church today. We can't believe we're actually sitting in a church service. However we find ourselves this morning, that we are not here by accident, but because you have seen to it that we would be in this place at this time because you have something you want to say to us. In all the ways we're put together and all the ways we feel like we're coming undone, help us to see we have far more in common than we realize. That on one hand, each of us is more of a mess than we would like to admit, more broken than the person next to us even knows about us. And at the same time, you see us and you know us in all of our complexity and contradiction, and your response is not to say, yuck, and not to push down or to crush or to condemn. Your response is to lift up and to love in the sacrificial work of your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray now that you would do perhaps the most difficult thing of all, that you convince us that you love us this much. Speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and teach us in a way that our lives will be transformed. We pray all these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, this week was a big week for our family. As soon as the service ended last Sunday, uh, we took off. We got in the car. We drove 500 miles south to Guerrero Negro, Mexico, which is halfway between here and Cabo San Lucas. A great drive. And the reason we went down there is because it's the largest gray whale migration site in the world. And so you go out on this bay, and there are hundreds and hundreds of whales. 
And the night before, we're staying in our little motel room, our whole family, and I've got Joshua, and I'm snuggling with him as he falls asleep. And Florence, as a great teacher and a, and a great mom, has printed out articles, and she has National Geographic for kids about the gray whales. And I'm reading to him, and I'm explaining, these whales have migrated 6,000 miles to be here. And I'm telling him about the mother whale. Before she comes, she eats one ton of food per day to get herself ready for the long journey. After this baby is born, this baby whale that's as big as our boat, the mother will feed this baby 40 gallons of milk a day so this little one can become a huge one. But then, all the knowledge, all the reading, all the data, all the traveling just pales in comparison to what actually happens when you see this huge gray whale coming toward you. And we're out there in this 25-foot boat, and a whale that is 35 feet long just comes right up and makes eye contact with you and comes in for you to pet the whale as you would pet a, a beloved dog. And here, this is one coming in. This is Levi leaning as far as he can over the boat with Florence's dad's hand on his back of his pants holding him in the boat as he goes underwater to kiss a gray whale on the head, okay? Now, that was an amazing experience together, but all the data, all the reading, all the anticipation paled in comparison to what it's actually like to dip your face under the cold water and kiss a whale on the head. Thank you. I think that's a dim image of what's going on in the passage that we just read. The passage we just read shows up in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's commonly known as the Transfiguration. And if you were the director of a movie and you were going to draw the plot line of how the gospel plays out, this would be one of the great climax moments of the gospel. Because so far, Jesus has taught in a way that no one has ever taught. He's drawn crowds in a way no one has ever followed. He was magnetic. He's healed people. He's loved people. He's forgiven people. But it's in this moment in this dark moment, it's like the bright lights actually come on and you see him for who he truly is, right? All the data, all the information comes to this moment where you actually experience the power and the presence of God. And it says he is so bright, so dazzling, it was unlike anything anybody had ever seen before. And it's interesting because in all of that glory, in all that presence, in all that power, as the lights go back out. It's like the shutter comes on for one moment, and then it goes back out. And the Gospel of Luke tells us the next thing Jesus does with all of that power and glory is he resolutely sets his face to the cross in Jerusalem. Think about that. Jesus, the image and likeness of the very God, in the flesh, in power and glory, does not use it to set up an empire that's controlled by the military, but uses it to go to a cross to die for the sins and the brokenness of this world. It's the great crescendo as we see him. Now look, uh, the there are some stories in the New Testament that are really easy to understand and get our arms around, our minds around. The transfiguration is not one of them, okay? So we wrestle with this text and what's going on, but I want to point out a few things I think we see. The first is we understand more deeply the identity of Jesus. Second, in uh, this whole statement of Peter wanting to make these three dwellings, the dwellings teach us about what it means to follow Jesus. And finally, we learn why it should even matter to you and me, okay? The identity of Jesus, 
what the dwellings teach us about following Jesus, and then why it matters for you and me. Now, first, the context is, and this is just kind of Bible reading 101, whenever you start a passage with six days later, go back and read what happened earlier so you can kind of see how the director is connecting these plots. Um, later on in the, the Apostle Paul's uh, letters to different churches, a lot of the passages begin with, therefore, or for this reason. Always go back and read the before part so you can kind of connect everything and don't take it out of context. So, six days later, what happened six days earlier? Six days earlier was this moment where Jesus asks his closest friends, who do the crowds say that I am? And this is where, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet, some think you're this great healer. He says, but who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Okay. Which, by the way, at the very end, when he says, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead, Son of Man was one of those titles that would go with Messiah, Christ, the long-awaited one who would set God's people free and usher in God's reigning kingdom, okay? So Peter makes this bold proclamation, you're the one, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And the next thing he says, following this pattern, the son of man must be crucified and go to the cross, but three days later he will rise again. And Peter says, never, right? You're not that kind of king. Uh, You have power. You don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you have your mind not on things of God, but on things of humanity, okay? I think what he's getting at there is, that Peter, uh, first of all, Peter responds how I think I would respond, maybe you would. Jesus, you're the teacher, you're powerful, I love you, I don't want to see you die. Nothing wrong with that. But I think the big takeaway there, Jesus is saying, the idea of redemption and renewal without sacrifice and cost is a satanic idea, right? The idea that you can save and, and renew the whole world but not give anything is not something that God has in mind for humanity. And so he says, I'm gonna continue on my course to redeem and renew the world, which brings us now to six days later. And here we are. Now we're on this mountain, okay? It mentions Moses and Elijah. Moses was the one who brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, through the Red Sea, uh, into the wilderness. Eventually they made their way to the promised land. But along that great trip, Moses met God where? on a mountain. And in fact, one of the, and then later, and then Elijah, who was one of the great prophets of Israel, when Elijah met with God, he met God on a mountain. And now here we are on another mountain. And we have Moses and Elijah. And we'll get to that in a moment. We have Jesus being transfigured. As it says, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. It echoes this passage earlier when Moses goes on the mountain and meets with God. It says when he came down, his face reflected the radiance of God. We could say that to meet with God, Moses' face reflected the radiance of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun. Right? The moon does not generate its own light. The moon can only reflect the light that it receives from the sun. Moses reflected God's radiance as the moon reflects the light of the sun, but now Jesus is on the scene and the light is emanating from him himself. The sun has come on the scene, the presence of God himself. He's not reflecting it, he's generating it. You are in the presence of something entirely different here. And when that happens, we have a voice. This is my son, the beloved. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You know, one of the things about the journey of following Jesus, one of the major aspects about Christianity 
is not that you and I figure out God, okay? So uh, someone might say, well, God is whatever I want God to be. God is whoever I believe God to be. Christianity would say, how's that working for you? Um, Because God actually, in his brilliance, does not say you need to find a way to me, but rather, in my love, I have found a way to break through to you. Every other religion and and many other different philosophies and kind of ethical codes will say something like the divine being has cut a hole in the ceiling of reality and has given commands or a moral code or is shouting down ways for us to be better people so that we can be with God and, and even and equal to connected to the divine. But Christianity says, no, 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 God has actually cut a hole in the ceiling of reality and has come down through it himself. Not to tell us how to be better people, but to be the one on our behalf that we could never be. As one theologian said, God became human so that humans might become one with God. And God the Father affirms all of that and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So when that voice comes to you and says, God does not speak in this world, you can counter it and say, yes, God does. The question is, are we listening? Are we tuning in more and more? As another uh, pastor says, you know, Jesus is what God has to say to this world. If you want to know what God is like, look at him. So we see the identity of Jesus. But let's zoom in for the time we have. We'll spend most of our time on these three dwellings that Peter wants to make. Just set my timer here for a sec. Um, so they're in this moment and suddenly there appears before them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice says, this is my son, the beloved with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and don't be afraid. Okay. First of all, I think we see three things. On one hand, this this word dwellings that Peter wants to make, uh, that harkens all the way back to the Hebrew word for tabernacle or booths. Okay, so let's hold that together. Dwelling, tent, tabernacle, booth. The bottom line is, on one hand, Peter is saying, I can't believe how much, I'm I'm in the presence of Moses and Elijah and Jesus, all at the same time. It's like when you watch the Oscars or the Grammys and the, the, uh, the host in the beginning says like, oh, this talent all together in the same room. Like there's so, like this is the pantheon of the greats right here. This is, this is the hall of fame. I wanna hold on to this. I wanna contain this. I wanna make, I wanna stay for a while. I think on one hand, he is, Jesus is saying, you cannot contain me, Right? Um, you, you can apprehend me, but you cannot comprehend me. You can approach me, but you can't get your arms around me. You can enjoy the moment and take what I'm giving you because it's a lot, but you cannot fit me into any possible box that you have. I love that one friend who came to Renew, he's, he's now out of town, um, came to Renew. This is just a great story where I've known this guy for a long time. He's walking down the street. I'm having a cup of coffee out before church. And I see him walking down the street. I say, hey, what are you doing here? And he goes, I've been listening to the podcast for months and today's the day I'm gonna actually come to church. And I love that. I hadn't seen him for 15 years. He comes to church, becomes involved. And after about two months of being a part of this community and hearing the stories and the scriptures and meeting all of you, he goes, I realize that I used to think Christianity was a box, but I need to turn it on its side and it's really a door. And you open the door and you move forward into this spacious land that's way bigger than you could ever imagine. 
And I think Jesus is saying here, you can approach me, but you can never put me in a box. He's much bigger. Even, so, so Christianity, the journey of following Jesus, if you imagine it to be the ocean, it is shallow enough for a one-year-old to wade into and to not drown, but it is deep enough that theologians and philosophers and scholars and holy people have dove as deep as they can into with their whole life and never gotten near the bottom. You cannot contain them. I think that's first what we see. But the second thing, we see that Jesus is not equal in person or in teaching to Moses and Elijah. This is very important. So Peter thought that he had a great idea as usual. Now we just saw six days earlier, Peter had a great idea and that didn't work out so well for him. Now Peter has another great idea. And part of it is, I think Peter is a, like a comedy of errors, right? Like he's in this great moment. He's like, I've got this great idea. Uh, was it this version or a different one? Uh, one of the other gospel writers, either Mark or Luke, when he tells the story, he goes, for Peter did not know what to say, right? Like, like forgive him, he just, he had no idea. Um, this reminds me of like this one time, I forget who it was. I met some high stature, famous person, and I just had no idea what to say. Fumbled over the words the whole time. They tolerated me until like the elevator doors opened and they could get out of the, of the elevator. Uh, I think that's what's going on for Peter in a way. Um, but here we see. He's got this great idea. We'll build three dwellings, three equal dwellings. We will treat Moses and Elijah and Jesus as equal. And God, the Father's voice, comes and interrupts the great idea and says, no, Jesus is my son. He's the one that you listen to. And I think this is really important for the way that we understand scripture, for the ways that we kind of uh, interpret where we are in the big biblical story, that Moses and Elijah, Moses represents the law, okay? The 10 commandments, the law of God, how to be one with God, how to be God's people. Elijah represents the prophets, right? The one who would call God's people back to what God's original vision of flourishing and beauty and thriving would be. So here we literally have the embodiment of the law and the prophets, which if you're Jewish is everything. And Peter says, this is great. Jesus is equal to the law and the prophets. I knew he was good. I didn't know he was that good. And God the Father says, he's even better than you can imagine. Because the, the law and the prophets longed to point to who Jesus is. As Jesus said in a passage we studied a couple weeks ago, he did not to come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they identified that there was a gap between humanity and the divine and that there was a bridge and a connection that needed to be made. They identified there's longing for God to dwell among God's people. And so they wanted a tabernacle or a tent or a temple to hold God's presence close to God's people. They identified that a sacrifice would need to be made to take away all sins. And now Jesus is here and he's saying, don't you realize the true tabernacle is here? God dwells in your midst, one with you. Don't you realize the one sacrifice to take away the sins of the world is actually here in your midst. I am the bridge that brings humanity and the divine back together. Jesus is not one more prophet trying to get closer to God. Jesus is God to whom all the prophets were trying to get close. So what that means for us then Actually, first, let's read this. Uh, I'll read this quote to you. You have it on page two. N.T. Wright, uh, world-renowned, probably one of the most um, 
renowned New Testament scholars of our particular day and age. He wrote, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. You hear what he's saying? The hurricane has become human. The fire has become flesh. He is not equal to anybody we've ever seen or ever heard, which is why the voice says, listen to him. It means then that the way we interpret scripture is we read all of the Old Testament in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You don't have to read too far into the Old Testament before you get to stuff you just cannot stand, right? And I get plenty of meetings with people that say, this is why I don't believe this stuff because I don't believe in a God that would do these things. And I would say to you, Jesus comes and says, interpret all of that through my life, death, and resurrection. Interpret all of that through my character. This is why in Jesus' ministry, he would often say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? He's not undoing the law and the prophets. He's taking it to the next level and showing that he has fulfilled it. You have heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and do good to the one who persecutes you. An entire new way of living in the world. You have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer and pray for them. Later on, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, having been crucified and risen from the dead, will walk with some of his followers, and it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them how everything in the Old Testament was actually talking about his life death, and resurrection. In other words, every story in the Bible, the Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is not an ethical code or a moral handbook of things you need to do to be a better person. The Bible is all about Jesus. The Bible is all about God's plan of renewal and redemption from beginning to end. I'll give you an example. Uh, Most people in this room probably know the story of David and Goliath. If you read that story as a moral code or an example of how you need to be in the world, then you will take away from it, David was small, Goliath was big. David was, uh, you know, David was brave. David didn't back down. And, and because David was brave and didn't back down, he was able to conquer Goliath. So now I need to be brave and not back down and be bigger, better, stronger, pull myself up by my bootstraps and I could take on anything in the world. Friends, you do that and you'll be exhausted by Wednesday, I promise. The real story of David and Goliath is to see that just as David went to fight on behalf of Israel, because Israel couldn't save themselves, they needed someone, they needed a champion, they needed someone to go to bat for them against the one who was going to ruin them. Just as he went to bat on their behalf, Christ goes to bat on your behalf. Just as David, the most unlikely champion, coming from humility and meekness, rises up to rescue, so Jesus, his final instrument of freedom and power, is not a tank or an aircraft carrier, it's a cross. 
through his death and resurrection, he has set us free. Don't you see every story actually points to Christ? I could go on and on. So this might be why later the writer of Hebrews will say, Jesus is the exact reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of his very being. In Colossians 1.15, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God. And so the Old Testament was longing for this God to come and reveal himself. And now he's saying, I'm here. Look no further. Now listen to what I have to say. So the Old Testament envisioned, waited for, anticipated, but now Jesus comes and fulfills. So should we stone sinners to death? Moses says, yes. God says, listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So do we call down vengeance and violence on our enemies? Elijah the prophet did. There's this one moment where God says, listen to Jesus, because Jesus and his followers are looking for a place to rest, and they come to this town in Samaria, and the Samaritans refuse them, and Jesus' closest friends say, should we call down fire on them? And Jesus says, no. The Son of Man did not come to destroy, but to save. Jesus is what God has to say. See, Moses could stone sinners, Elijah could burn up enemies, but for a Christian, that does not instruct us. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. There's an entirely new way. It's not simply raw biblical principles that we seek. It's a Christ-like life. Friends, biblical principles taken out of context have been used to exploit and push down women in societies, you know this, have been used to sustain slavery and other unjust practices. We don't simply seek biblical principles with no context. We seek Christ-likeness. Jesus is what God has to say. This is why it's so important for us to meet together and immerse ourselves in scripture so we know the story. How can you dance if you don't know the tune? How can you sing if you don't know the song? We remind each other of the great tune of the universe every time we gather. And then we walk together to support one another. But here's something I want to share about the three dwellings, the three tents, uh, that I have not really thought of before I was studying for this this week. Um, they were, it says they were terrified. And I always wonder why... Why were they terrified? There's so many good things that are taking place here. The midst of the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, the cloud of glory comes, the voice comes, the glory and the presence of God is here. And then you remember, these people were Jewish and they would know their Old Testament stories. And they'd remember that Moses met with God in the glory cloud and heard God's voice. And there's this moment where Moses says, let me see your glory. Let me get inside the cloud. And God says, no. If you do, you'll die. You cannot stand to be in my presence. Now, I realize we hear that and you go, oh yeah, that sounds like a really nice loving God. That's great. But let me just say, it, it actually stands to reason. You know, If you leave here and walk down the street and an elephant falls out the, the window of a three-story building, just go with me here, and the elephant falls on you, the elephant's not, the, and you are squished and you die, okay? That's not unfair, that's not unjust, that's not mean, that's not cruel. That's just physics, right? The, the, the substance of your being could not bear the weight of the substance of the elephant, right? 
Or you know this, if you go outside and you look at the sun for 20 minutes, it'll burn your corneas out of your eye, right? It's not being mean, it's not being unjust. The substance of your eyes cannot take the substance of the sun's light to it, and it burns out. And I think God is saying, you, the substance of your being cannot be in the substance of my raw, unbridled presence. It will burn you up. It will crush you. So maybe that's why they're afraid. Because they're on this mountain and the glory cloud, cl cloud comes and the voice comes and they're going, we're toast. We're gonna die. I think that might be why Peter's saying we should build some tabernacle. We should build some temple. We should build some tent. We need to contain the fire. We need a firewall here. We're gonna die. And Jesus' response is, get up. Don't be afraid. Why? Why can Jesus say, you will not die, but you will live? My glory will not burn you up, but it will actually set you free and on fire in a way you could never imagine, which leads us to our third point, why it matters to you and me at all. It says Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. You ever see like important people talk about something, you go, I just wonder what they were saying, right? Or in, in Hamilton, I love the song, I wanna be in the room where it happens, right? No one knows what, what happened in the room where it happens. Jesus, Moses, Elijah are talking together and we don't know what they're saying. Except in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us what they're talking about. And it says he is talking about his departure. The word in Greek for departure that is used there is the same word as exodus. Jesus is talking with Moses, the leader of the Exodus, out of slavery in Egypt into freedom of the promised land. And Jesus is talking to Moses about the greater Exodus that makes that Exodus through the Red Sea look like a splashing in a bathtub compared to what he is about to do because he is delivering us not only from physical slavery, but from slavery to sin and death itself. He's talking to them about what he will do on the cross and in his resurrection. And friends, there you have it. Moses and Elijah never ask you to take up your cross and follow them because they never take up a cross for you. But Jesus can say, follow me through everything because I will be with you through everything. And when it feels like you're being crushed and condemned, knowing that I take all of that on your behalf, when it feels like this world's not the way it's supposed to be, when your life is not changing fast enough, know that I've taken the penalty of sin and death, the brokenness, all the things we've done to each other, all the things we've done to ourselves, upon myself on the cross, and I've dealt a death blow to death itself. I have set you free. And three days later, in the miracle of the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday, in the resurrection, I show you the final word on this life is not alienation and sadness and fear and violence, but it's new life and joy and connection and light. And this, my friends, is why Christians hope. This is why you can meet God on the mountain and not need to cover up for fear of being burned, but rather open up because you know that you are loved and renewed. This is what will change the world. This is what will change your life. And so as we enter the season of Lent, my hope for you and me is that we go on this deeper journey together and that you would be surprised that you are loved this much. And then you would be enlivened and sent out to love others in the same way. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray now that you would wake us up to your glory. 
there's another telling of this story that says that the, uh, his, Jesus' friends that were there were tired. They wanted to sleep, but because they stayed awake, they were actually able to see your, your glory. I pray that you would wake us up to see your glory more and more even now. And then send us out as your messengers, as your hands and feet, as beloved people arousing a beloved and broken world into your goodness. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.